This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Is this really a special drought or do we just live in a desert, a place where water is is a little more scarce? And, you know, when you have these giant agricultural companies just using all this water, well, I mean, yeah, it's, it's obvious that it's really going to put the rest of us in a pinch. to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Welcome on back into the Lions of Liberty podcast, where I, your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, as you just heard, strives to advance the ideas of liberty. Before we get into today's show, I want to take a second to let you know about Health Excellence Select, an amazing alternative to Obamacare, which utilizes health sharing to cover your medical costs. That's Health Excellence Select. For more information, head on over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. Lionsofliberty.com slash health. Lionsofliberty.com slash health. Lionsofliberty.com slash health. My guest today is a political and communications consultant. His writing has appeared at Breitbart, Reason, NPR, Town Hall, The Daily Caller, and many other publications. He is the co-founder and editor of AgainstCronyCapitalism.org. He is Nick Sorrentino. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast, Nick. How's it going, Mark? It's going great, Nick. And, you know, this subject of crony capitalism, it's one that just seems to come up. It seems to sort of uh, inject itself into every aspect of modern-day politics. Uh, and we'll talk about that more as the show goes on. But first, I want to learn a little bit more about you. So how and when did your political ideas first begin to take shape? You know, I'll tell you, I, I pretty much knew I was essentially a libertarian probably when I was as young as, say, 10 years old. I didn't know what a libertarian was. I thought I was a conservative for a long time. But, uh, you know, over time I learned. I've probably been an outed libertarian for eight years or so. And so before that, you considered yourself more of just a, a standard conservative. What made you use that libertarian label? And what made you actually, I guess, out yourself? I looked at what drove you know, my personal politics, what I thought was valuable, what I thought was important. And I was much more interested in, in the, the freedom side of what was commonly called conservatism than kind of the... Uh, the neocon sort of war side, sort of social conservative side of what was at the time called conservatism, if that makes any sense. Sure, yeah. And what about this issue of crony capitalism specifically that, that really inspired you to go ahead and co-found with past podcast guest Hunter Lewis to go ahead and co-found against cronycapitalism.org? Why did you want to dedicate this website and this organization specifically to this issue of crony capitalism? Well, I think it's a, a vitally important subject. It's always been somewhat crony, but it has gotten especially crony since the crash of 2008. Uh, the state is more and more involved in business, and business is more and more involved in the state, and I see that as highly dangerous, as does my partner, Hunter Lewis. We believe that there was a place, uh, and you know, we could add value to the world by chronicling 
you know, the developments in crony capitalism, as we have seen, it's now, we're coming up on four years. It's only grown, but we're doing our best. And you're certainly doing a great job over there drawing attention to this issue. You guys have shared a few of our articles along the way, which we truly appreciate. It's something we're always looking at as well. But I want to talk about this term a little more for people out there that might not be familiar with the term crony capitalism. I know a lot of my, say, progressive or progressive-leaning friends will often give me flack when I use the term. They'll, they'll think I'm, I'm being hyperbolic or I'm just kind of mudslinging, but it's, it's an actual term that has an actual meaning. So what does the term crony capitalism actually mean? Well, essentially, it's the partnership of the state and government. You know, it's a polite way of, you know, it's like fascism light, essentially. It's interesting that you say that your progressive friends have a beef with the term, because we get it both ways. You know, for instance, Noam Chomsky has argued that the term crony capitalism, you know, isn't legitimate in his eyes, because it infers that capitalism itself is okay. It's just that crony capitalism is bad, which is basically which is exactly how we feel. But what's funny is that a lot of conservatives have a beef with it, too, because they think that it sullies capitalism, which it it doesn't. We have modifiers in the English language. So the term crony capitalism, where cronies go into government and amass capital for their own private wealth and benefit, essentially that's crony capitalism. And now, what specific industries seem to be more prone to crony capitalism than others? Are there certain industries that just seem to get so embedded with government more so than others? You know, everybody seems to be lining up at the trough. Banking constitutes the largest single you know, sector of our economy anyway, uh, which is frankly not a good thing. But, you know, the bailouts which happened in 2008, I mean, like for instance, I mean, Goldman Sachs shouldn't exist. You know, it's this massive company that essentially the, you know, the taxpayers of the United States bailed out. We know the story. Two uh, quarters later, they issued the largest bonuses in their history in the, in the depths of the Great Recession or uh, you know, the, the modern depression, whatever you want to call it. And the banks and the Federal Reserve worked hand in hand. It's a partnership. So if, if there's one sector of, of the economy that's the absolute worst, it is banking. But, you know, I mean, you've got the military industrial complex, you've got agriculture, you know, there's all sorts of stuff, even tech, unfortunately, increasingly tech. Let's discuss a little more some of the more specific companies that benefit from crony capitalism here in the United States. Now, you guys recently linked to a report that is entitled Uncle Sam's Favorite Corporations, which is, seeks to identify the, the companies that get some of the, you know, that dominate getting the, the receipt of federal subsidies. So what are some of the companies that stand out to you as some of the biggest recipients, the biggest uh, beneficiaries of crony capitalism here in the United States? Well, first I want to say that the, uh, the organization that did that report, uh, I believe is called Good Jobs First, and it's a generally, as I understand it, progressive organization. My hat's off to them because it's a great report, and I encourage everybody to go online and look it up. You know, really, in that report, you see that banking is absolutely at the tippy top uh, in terms of you know, exploiting the government for uh, for private benefit. But you know, I mean, Goldman Sachs. I, I always come back to Goldman Sachs; they're easy to beat up. But uh, Bank of America. I mean, just run through the big banks. You know, Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan. You name it. They all have direct lines, essentially main lines of easy money from the Federal Reserve right into their accounts, essentially. So they're the worst. Goldman Sachs. That's interesting. I mean, when I interviewed you, your partner, Hunter Lewis, he had named 
Goldman Sachs is one of the worst, but when I pressed him for the number one choice, he named Monsanto. But you would go with Golden <laughs> Goldman Sachs. I, I'm sure they're neck and neck. But um, I recently did an interview with uh, the science babe, Yvette Guinevere, and she seemed almost taken aback when I when I mentioned that Hunter Lewis had called Monsanto the the most crony company in the United States. So what can you tell us about Monsanto and how they operate, and how are they a crony company? Well, you know, Monsanto, like Goldman, uh, has done an excellent job of getting their people placed in high levels of government, the FDA, and so on. You know, Hunter is, frankly, an expert in the areas of health and food, and that might be one of the reasons why he targeted Monsanto specifically. My area, primarily, is outside of that area. However, you know, Monsanto has gone to great lengths to gain the regulatory system to their benefit. There's, as I, you know, it was a couple of years ago, the, uh, the Monsanto, uh, I forget the term, but... Um, the, the Monsanto Protection Act, I think they called it. Is that what you're referring to? That is exactly what I'm referring to. And, you know, I mean, that, that's just a small example. That was a 90-day window, I believe, uh, where they were free, you know, essentially got an absolution of uh, litigation. And I forget exactly why it was that that was so important for them at the time. It was a while ago. Uh, but that's just a you know just an example. Monsanto is very very is absolutely a, a crony company. There is no doubt about that. But I I would still go back to banking as being the uh, personally the biggest perpetrators. Yeah, Hunter and I pretty much agree on almost everything. It's usually just degrees of uh, agreement. And uh, and on this one, I I I just put the banks a little ahead of uh, Monsanto. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, choosing your favorite serial killer. I mean, they're all they're all bad, right? There's no there's no, no there's no real winner here, and we're all the losers. The, the the average everyday citizen that's kind of has to, in many ways, fund these companies and sort of support their existence, but through our tax dollars, through our government subsidies, and that kind of thing. Now, you know, one thing that people will often point out when we point out that sort of the negative consequences of government and business working together, a lot of times I'll just hear, well, the market fails. There's a market failure. So sometimes, yeah, government has to step in and, and help some industries out so they don't just collapse. And, you know, you actually wrote an interesting article that, that I just read this morning entitled, Why Don't We Have Private Passenger Trains? And this kind of ties into that market failure concept that we hear so much. So, Nick, why don't you just give us a quick summary of this article? Why don't we have private passenger trains here in the United States? Yesterday, I had the pleasure, and actually, for the most part, it was actually a pleasure of uh, riding along uh, from Charlottesville, Virginia to Washington, D.C. on Amtrak and back. And, you know, I'm sitting here thinking, I'm looking at the people riding along, and I was thinking about how convenient it was that it put me right in downtown Washington, D.C. so I could go to my meetings and so on. This saves me a lot of time, a lot of money. And it just seemed to me that somehow, some way, somebody's got to be able to make money from this, uh, that the economics have changed. Amtrak is a government-owned, taxpayer-owned, how I personally prefer to refer to it, passenger rail is the only one we have in the United States. And the reason that is, we are told, is because of market failure, that it's just not profitable for uh, companies to run passenger lines. Well... You know, just a little bit of research, and I am not an expert on this area either, but a little bit of research shows that, you know, it used to be we had lots of passenger lines. But one of the reasons why it became unprofitable is because the government around World War II time just levied all sorts of taxes and regs on top of these guys. And then they're surprised when the lines started to fall apart. Of course, you know, people looked around and they said, oh my gosh, we can't have no rail lines. 
So, you know, let's let's institute this thing uh, called Amtrak, by the way, under uh, Richard Nixon, you know, that small government conservative. Um, and, uh, and, then, and then we ended up with this massive behemoth, which loses money every year. Um, the thing is, the two points, you know, the pressures that the passenger lines felt in other times, back when highways were open and new and fresh and not filled with traffic. When it when if you drove from you know my home into Washington, it wasn't some kind of horrible disaster, terrible experience, you know, just a completely wasted day. You can get up and back uh, without a ton of traffic. That is no longer the case. So the market may be there for a private passenger train. That's one thing. The other thing is speaking to you know market failure in general. Markets don't fail. And, you know, I remember way back to my, you know, uh, first economic class, you know, we talked about market failure. And I remember thinking to myself, it's like, markets don't fail. They just, they just reflect, they show a price that maybe a lot of people just don't like. The market may not do what we, what a lot of people want it to do, but it hasn't failed. It's just given us, you know, an indication that this doesn't make sense. And so... When people say that a market fails and the government needs to come in, the answer is, well, why is it that we're really coming in? Is it because the market failed or is it because there is a constituency that insists that this thing continue to exist even though economically it's not feasible? And I think that's the proper way to look at, quote, end quote, market failure. Sure. I mean, companies may fail, industries may suffer, but that doesn't necessarily mean the market is doing something wrong. The market's not an entity that can even do right or wrong. It's really just a system where that responds to the, the wants of consumers. At least it should be a system that does that. Of course, in in the subject we're discussing, crony capitalism, many times companies do stay afloat that should be failing. And, and really, that's that's a failure. It's, it's a government failure when they're propping up the market in areas that it where certain industries or companies might otherwise be failing. Now, I want to look at a few sort of uh, hot-button political issues that people are talking about and, and try to point out some of the crony capitalist aspects and how that concept ties into them. So why don't we start off with, with something people have been really talking about lately since the FCC's recent ruling on net neutrality. So what are the crony capitalist aspects to the concept of net neutrality? Well, the whole thing has got crony aspects. There's really, there's really no winner. There's so many ins and outs and what have you, as the dude would say. Essentially, what we're talking about is whether or not the ISPs get to control the the last mile, you know, the part of the infrastructure of the internet that they've created. Essentially, they built the road, and do they have the right to control that road that they've invested money in uh, putting into the ground and so on? And I argue that from a property rights perspective, that certainly is the case. Advocates of net neutrality say, well, you know, everything should move at the same speed and so on. And, uh, you know, everybody should have the, you know, each packet of information. Now, I say this as somebody who runs a website, okay? Obviously, if I'm going to get knocked off and people aren't going to read my stuff, I will no longer make a living. So I really do have skin in this particular game. But, you know, basically, advocates of net neutrality say that you know, what we need to do is make sure that all packets move at the same speed. Nobody gets any benefit and they, they can't gain the system. Nobody can pay a little bit more to move a little faster along this last mile, this, this toll road. Well, 
you know, I argue that you're in Los Angeles, I'm in Washington, D.C. The only roads that move are the toll roads. <laughs> you know, if you're Netflix, you essentially are, you know, you know, believe me, I like my movies as much as the next person. House of Cards, great show. Love it. I, I don't want it to lag. But that takes a ton of bandwidth. And if you think of it in terms of a road, well, you're talking about a big giant train of tractor trailers. Whereas my website's a little car. You know, I don't take up that much space. So perhaps it makes sense for Netflix to pay extra to use that toll road. Now, Hollywood gets is scared by this, although this is never talked about, uh, because they feel like there is a delivery vehicle now for their content. They were scared that they were just going to not exist. And uh, Netflix and these streaming services have come along and really breathe the life into especially television and they don't want to lose that uh, and that's one of the reasons why they've made the case for net neutrality the problem is what's likely to happen is that over time the ISPs are not going to invest in that that final mile anymore because they won't be able to make money on it and those toll roads that final mile is going to get full of stuff and everything's going to move at the same pace, but it's going to be equally slow. Now, hopefully I'm wrong. You know, I'm not a network guy, but uh, that's what I fear. Do you think in some way that the call for net neutrality is is in some way actually a response to crony capitalism? Because in many ways, like if, if I try to change my Internet service, which I've done like three times, I've switched from Verizon to Time Warner and then back to Verizon because those are the only options I have in my neighborhood, in my area. And I think in many ways that might be due to regulations, due to the, how difficult it is for a small company to just come in and, 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 you know, connect me to the internet. And even when I, I did actually find a third company that can do that, but even they have to go through Verizon's lines and that sort of thing. And of course, Verizon, you know, they might, they may own the phone lines or AT&T may own the phone lines, but in many ways that ownership came about through, you could argue, through crony capitalism, through their crony deals with local governments and local municipalities. So what, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, well, I couldn't agree with you more. As I said at the beginning, uh, when, when you asked me about the net neutrality, I said that there are no good guys here, right. and, and ISPs certainly are not good guys. I mean, they've essentially, over time, been able to work out monopoly deals on a municipal level. It's one of the reasons why, you know, there's another article we have we did a few months ago, and it was based on a paper done by Cato that says, you know, hey, I, you know, I thought my cable was deregulated. Why is it they only have one provider? Right. And basically that deregulation that happened in the mid-90s was complete baloney. It was a, a way that the ISPs were essentially gained the system. Classic crony capitalism. So... You know, um, Lawrence Lessig, uh, somebody who I respect quite a lot, I actually corresponded with him on this subject. And he made the argument, uh, you know, I was like, I just want to, you know, quadruple check my, my logic on net neutrality so that, uh, so that I'm making what I think is an intellectually consistent argument. And he basically heard me out and said that, well, you know, the thing is the ISPs don't get to reclaim their virginity. They're cronies pretty much from the outset. So right. it's crony versus crony. And you know what? He's probably right. Uh, like I said, there are no good guys in this thing, and uh, we'll see how it goes. I just want to make sure that I just I it would be just a crying shame uh, if we saw innovation reduced because of this. But who knows? Like I said, it was already a current game. 
couple more things I want to touch on here. And, and I know the big topic out here for me in Los Angeles, I'm sure you saw this week that Governor Jerry Brown issued a sort of an, an executive order where, you know, to, to restrict the use of water by the everyday citizen. But at the same time, you have these industries in California, these agricultural industries that are literally flooding deserts to grow rice using all this water, and, and no one seems to say anything about that. So so can you explain a little bit more how crony capitalists have sort of um, played a part in the in the California drought? Obviously, they can't control the weather, uh, unless you listen to maybe Alex Jones or some conspiracy theorists, but, <laughs> but, um, you know, but, but how do these companies sort of, of game the system and, and collude with the government out here in California? to cause these conditions where it's really only the citizens that are suffering the effects of the regulations and the executive dictates that come along in response to this drought. There's a very interesting article that I assume that you're kind of referring to. It is, uh, I believe it was from Newsweek, and it was like how ag gained, uh, gained the California drought. Right. And basically uh, what it argues is that uh, water prices are kept artificially low because agriculture is such a powerful lobby in California. And so the, the salad bowl of uh, California, I think that's the correct term, uh, you know, it's like something like 80% of all vegetables in America are grown uh, in the valley there. So, there, you know, that's huge money, obviously, and huge political power. And those farmers want to make sure that water stays cheap. Well, the thing is, water is a valuable commodity, and it's subject to price just like anything else, although we may not want it to be subject to price. And because it, these prices are held artificially low by the state, you know, the, the farmers essentially overuse the resource, which then impacts the people who just want to wash their car. California, as I understand it, you know, over a, a grant, you know, from a geological time standpoint, pretty much been a desert. There are times where it was greener than other times, but it's for the most part a desert. And the fact that we grow massive amounts of rice, which grows, you know, in Vietnam, they have rice paddies. <laughs> it's a rainforest there. Okay, that's why it grows well. California is not a rainforest. And maybe, maybe we shouldn't be growing rice in a place that, you know, historically, again, on a geologic timescale, is a desert. Yeah. Or if they want to grow the rice, great, but, you know, don't make us, the rest of us, essentially subsidize that rice by having to restrict our water use so that these guys can continue to just flood the desert literally to grow rice. It seems so absurd, but that's what's going on out here. And, and just thinking about this, I was watching um, a movie, uh, The Lords of Dogtown, the other week, and this, this takes place in, I believe, like the late 70s. And, you know, just one scene stood out to me where you hear on the radio about the drought out here in California, and this is 40 years ago. So, I mean, at some point you got to think, is this really a, a special drought or do we just live in a desert, a place where water is is a little more scarce? And, you know, when you have these giant agricultural companies just using all this water, well, I mean, yeah, it's, it's obvious that it's really going to put the rest of us in a pinch. But that part never seems to come up in the political debate for, for some reason. Well, you know, I, I will say that you guys out in California, I have, I have great love for California. The past four years I've gone out there, for, I've gone to Northern California for a week. Uh, and in another life, I lived in Monterey, California. So, I, I, hey, you guys have fantastic weather, lots of great things going for you, but your government is not one of them. No, it is not. And, and I mean, there, there's positive and negatives everywhere you go, but ultimately the government and the laws are going to be a reflection in some way of, of the people in the state. And I think uh, it's safe to say that people out here have maybe some more um, 
big government ideas than, than anything else. The thing is, you hear from progressives, there's so many progressives out here, and, and they're always against business and against you know big corporations. But it, it almost seems like they don't realize that they often support policies that do support those those big corporations and those big businesses that they deride so much. I mean, for example, Jerry Brown's dictate right here to restrict water use for private citizens. Well, I mean, like we said, that's crony capitalism. That's helping big agriculture, and yet you don't really see the progressives uh, upset about that part. They're only they seem to support you know any sort of dictates that the government will take to restrict water, and and it really is interesting because they seem to demonize uh, their fellow citizen. You know, if if, if I'm seen watering my lawn i'm the worst guy in the world meanwhile there's these guys <laughs> flooding the desert so it's crazy to me uh nick i know we, we we're about to wrap up but i do want to hit on one more article that you guys posted and this is actually a link to a recent article that our own john odermatt wrote and hey, i'm all for the legalization movement obviously i think the war on drugs is one of the the worst federal programs that has ever been in existence and it's great to see a a movement to legalize marijuana at least on on the state level in many states even on the federal level now there's a movement for that as well uh and out in ohio there is a strong legalization movement going on as you know but there's a little catch here because there's a bill that's being pushed forward to legalize marijuana but part of that bill actually basically hands the rights to grow marijuana to one company who's basically spending about $40 million to try to push this bill and earn exclusive rights to marijuana growth. So can, can you just touch on that real quick? I, I know we're, we're the ones that wrote this article, but you know, how is it that this, this even when you see something positive, it seems like we can't even get a good law passed without these cronies just sneaking in and, and ruining it for everybody and taking control of it for themselves? Well, I mean, and that's one of the reasons why uh, Gets Critic Capitalism exists, you know, so that we can highlight these issues so that, uh, you know, when, you know, these cronies do, you know, work their way in uh, and jack the system, that we can hold them accountable. Uh, You know, 10 years ago, that probably was not, in fact, it was not the case. Now it's increasingly the case, thank God. Now, as far as Ohio is concerned, yeah, I mean, basically, I mean, the thing is with pot is that, yeah, and I I totally agree. It's, it's funny, you know, many of our readers are sort of uh, of the more conservative type and, and increasingly like kind of social con type. And, you know, I've seen over the years, uh, the past four years, them become increasingly open to legalized pot, which is encouraging. But, you know, pot in the movie Walk Hard, where one of the band members in, the, in this movie, you know, is, is talking about pot. And he's like, it's the cheapest drug there is. And it's the truth. It's cheap. It doesn't cost anything practically. Um, so in order to make money around it, you got to create these regulatory moats. And that's what these guys are doing. They see an opportunity to make money as pot becomes legal. But the only way they're going to make money over the medium to long term is if they regulate it to death. Because people are going to figure out that they can just grow it in a pot in their backyard. So as all of this is being hashed out, uh, we need to keep them on their toes and uh, make sure... They know that that we're watching so that we get a better end product, legislatively speaking. Another point I, I wanted to make, uh, because you made reference to progressive friends. Thankfully, I have a, a great number of progressive friends also. Well, you know, I'm, I'm lucky to have a few friends, and some of them are progressive. And, you know, truly, it is important for those of us who believe in the market and believe in the power of the market to make our case regularly to talk about things like the fact that ag is gaining water to these folks so that they understand it's vitally important if we really want to move this country forward in the years to come.
Absolutely, Nick. And I'm glad that there are people out there like yourself, like Hunter Lewis, like us at Lions of Liberty, that are pointing out these issues and trying to point out the crony capitalist aspects to just about everything. As we talked about today, we've we've hit on so many different sorts of subjects and they all sort of tie back into this issue of crony capitalism. Or if you really want to push it all the way, you call it fascism light. I might not be as nice. I might just call it fascism because it's essentially the same thing. Uh, you know, Mussolini... He was a fascist, and he he started this this concept of sort of wedding, or maybe the concept might even go back thousands of years in reality. But at least at least in the modern sense, this concept of government and business coming together. He he was a very eloquent speaker. He phrased it in a very nice way. But this is the result of it, and the result at the end of the day is the everyday guy, the everyday Joe, losing out and essentially paying for a few large industries to to control the economy. And and it might be good for a few people, but it's certainly not good for the most of us, and it's certainly not. Good Good for freedom. So thank you for doing what you're doing at againstcronycapitalism.org. And we certainly appreciate the fact that you guys share our articles from now and then as well. And we're all kind of fighting the same fight here. And Nick, before I let you go, feel free to let everyone out there know how they can find your website, how they can connect with you, and, and anything else that you'd like to plug, feel free to uh, plug away. It's againstcronycapitalism.org. You know, feel free to come by, uh, comment. We've got a lively group of folks. Uh, you can check us out on Facebook, too. Uh, we've got over 200,000 likes on Facebook, and it's lively there, too. Oh, well, that explains why our articles blow up when you post them. That's impressive. <laughs> well, that's that's encouraging to hear because, frankly, one of the missions of our website is to give uh, websites like your own increased coverage. So that's wonderful to hear. Um, yeah, so just come on by. Uh, make your voice heard. Uh, everybody is welcome as long as they're respectful. You don't have to agree with us. And that is the general rule, and I think you'll see that it's a fun place to, to hang out and uh, talk about the issues of the day, that's for sure. Nick Sorrentino, everybody. Be sure to check out againstcronycapitalism.org. Nick, take care. Good talking to you, man. You too. Bye. Hey, guys. It's Mark Claire here, lionsofliberty.com, where we strive to advance the ideas of liberty daily. We bring you the Morning Roar. That's right. Every Monday to Friday, we'll have a brand new edition of the Morning Roar, where we provide a roundup of some news stories that you may not find in the mainstream media or even in your typical social media news feed. We find stories that relate to the ideas of liberty and provide you with our liberty perspective on them. We wrap it all up every Friday with Felony Friday, where our own John Odermatt goes out and takes a look at some sort of felony. There's felonies committed every day, you know, whether it's a felony committed by the police, a politician, or even an average citizen. You can find all of this and so much more over at LionsOfLiberty.com, advancing the ideas of liberty daily. Chris Rossini's book, Set Money Free. Set money free, set money free. A special forward written by Ron Paul. Set money free, set money free. Everything we need to know about the Federal Reserve. Set money free, set money free. Buy Set Set Money money Free. Set money free. Now on Amazon.com. Set money free. Set money free. Set money free. Chris Rossini's Set Money Free. All right, gang, I hope you enjoyed my interview there with Nick Sorrentino 
of againstcronycapitalism.org. If you're not one of the 200,000 people that likes them on Facebook, get over on Facebook and like them. They're a great couple guys, Nick Sorrentino and Hunter Lewis. Both guys have interviewed on the show before, and they're very principled guys. They try to look at everything through this aspect, through this prism of crony capitalism. Like I said during the interview, a lot of times I'll get some flack for some people about using the term crony or cronyism. But at some point, we have to describe things as they actually are. (laughs) And, you know, when you have pure capitalism, which is just private ownership of property, well, that's one thing. And then we have to describe something else. And this something else is crony capitalism. It's when the private owners of goods, of capital, of industry collude with those in government to benefit themselves. And it's something we can see in literally every sector of the economy. As Nick mentioned, banking is one of the biggest sectors. You have the Federal Reserve, which is essentially a monopoly on money in the United States. And the Federal Reserve has banks that it is connected to that get favors, that get preferential treatment, that get that newly printed Federal Reserve money before anybody else, before it becomes devalued. Companies like Goldman Sachs that would have gone under if it wasn't for the Federal Reserve, if it wasn't for the 2008 bailouts. You know, we talked about market failure during this interview, and and crony capitalism essentially prevents companies from failing that should. It props them up. It gives them special favors. It prevents a true free market from flourishing. I mean, I don't know about you, but I can't get internet from anyone besides Verizon or Time Warner, and they both stink. You were lucky I can get this podcast up with how bad my internet is sometimes, but I find a way. When companies essentially create their own monopolies or duopolies or what have you in certain areas, well, they can pretty much do whatever they want. They're not really subject to the whims of the market nearly as much. Sure, they might compete with each other. But really, they should be competing with the little guy. They should have to compete with everybody. But the playing field is so stacked in the favor of the giant corporations, many of which have lobbyists who work in government, maybe many of which have ex-employees that now work in the very same agencies that regulate those companies. So there are very obvious conflicts of interests here. But at the end of the day, crony capitalism, fascism, I'll just say it, is allowed to prosper because people either don't recognize it, which I think is actually step one, which is why it's great to have people like Nick Sorrentino out there who are dedicating themselves to this every single day to drawing attention to these issues, drawing attention to these crony companies and the policies which help prop them up at the expense of the rest of us. But even behind that, it comes down to a bad philosophy, as I always say back here, a lack of a concept of individual rights, a lack of a concept of true property rights, which is how a lot of these crony companies acquire their quote-unquote property, much of which is acquired through crony deals with government, through regulations which prevent others from legitimately acquiring property to compete with them. But the number one step in fixing any sort of problem is identifying it and pointing it out to people. And that's what Nick Sorrentino does at AgainstCarnyCapitalism.org. That's what we try to do here at Lions of Liberty, at the Lions of Liberty podcast, at LionsofLiberty.com, our website, which I hope you are checking out. We have such fresh content every single day. We have new articles and new podcasts twice a week. If you're new to this, guys, 
Come on over. We're happy to have you. Join us on our social media, facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty, over on Twitter, at Lions of Liberty. Find us on Google+. Find our YouTube channel and join the conversation. If you have any suggestions, any questions, any comments, feel free to drop me an email, mark, M-A-R-C, at lionsofliberty.com, or pop into our Facebook group, the Lions of Liberty Forum. We will link to all this stuff in the show notes. And this coming Thursday, I will be speaking with a gentleman by the name of Michael Minardi, he was the lawyer for a man named Jesse Teplecki, a Florida man who was growing marijuana in his own home illegally because Florida does not have medical marijuana laws. But Michael Minardi, his attorney, helped him win his case and get him acquitted of any crime whatsoever. I'm very interested in speaking to him and finding out just how he was able to do this and maybe you know provide a little bit of a path for other people where states don't quite have the laws they need to use the substance they need. In this case, he was using marijuana to help his anorexia and give him an appetite. And hopefully we can sort of paint a picture of how he was able to do this. I'm really looking forward to speaking to him. And until this Thursday, folks, live long and live free. Head of Editing and Mastering is John Dahlberg. 